Welcome to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, Jake P. Colson. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. I'm here in Chicago. We're at the WNS SPC meeting, and I'm here with Stacy Quintero Wolf. Am I saying that correctly? You are. Okay. Stacy and I uh, know each other from 2001, I think it was. Uh, I was a fellow in Miami, Infolded, and you were uh, chief. Were you chief resident then? Chief resident. Okay, great. So, Stacy, tell us a little about where you are, uh, where do you work, and what you do and specialize in. Sure, absolutely. I'm at Wake Forest now, and I am program director there for the residency program, and I am director of neurointerventional surgery. So, I have done a fellowship in cerebrovascular skull base and then also in endovascular. Great, great. Now, I remember in uh, Miami, Roberto Harris loved you. Jock Marcus loved you. They said you could do any kind of surgery, including spine, right? And you've, you've, you're now settled in a specialty area, which is endovascular. Can you tell us how you came to that kind of area? Sure, absolutely. I started, I remember my PGY2 year was the year that ISAT came out, and I uh, listened. Oh, what's ISAT? So not oh. all of our listeners are neurosurgeons. Tell ISAT, ISAT. That is exactly correct, and that is the... Uh, that is the study that was landmark to show that coiling uh, for aneurysms was beneficial and superior over clipping for ruptured aneurysms. Uh, and that kind of rocked the world of what neurosurgery was, where we clipped all aneurysms. Uh, poor Dr. Heroes for weeks railed on and on about how this was the end of neurosurgery and the study was terrible and it couldn't possibly be true. And then he started writing editorials. And then about six months later, he uh, started talking to several of us very seriously about how we needed to train in endovascular. Uh, And so he was just very brilliant to see kind of the writing on the wall and how this was going to affect neurosurgery and to make sure that neurosurgery kept control of aneurysms. Uh, He knew that we needed to start training in this. Interestingly enough, he also, at this time, he was the one that coined brain attack and time is brain uh, when he was director of NINDS. And so he uh, also had foresaw that stroke was going to become a surgical disease. And in fact, it has very much done that as well. Yeah. So shout out to Roberto. And and in follow-up to that, have those study results stood? In other words, sometimes you see a study and it shows endo is better than open, uh, that is open surgery. Is that still the case, you think? Oh, absolutely. Uh, And specifically for ruptured aneurysms, um, but we did another trial out of the Barrow, the BRAT study, and that definitely showed the exact same results. And uh, so that's something that, um, you know, has absolutely borne out in ruptured aneurysms, has translated over to unruptured aneurysms, although that data is definitely not as solid, but uh, certainly uh, the trends are absolutely there. And we, you know, recently did a paper looking at the trends in treating aneurysms. And, you know, it's it's really come around to about 70% being treated endovascularly and 30% being clipped and there's some some good and some bad to that so is there a future like if, for the guys who want to do like skull based vascular or is it, i mean 30 percent of the volume means you only need one of every three or four that used to be there right 
yeah, it's uh, definitely it's something that requires now fellowship training, no question. You know, when I came through I, in my chief year, I've clipped probably about 60, 70 aneurysms. And now, you know, our chiefs are probably only clipping in reality maybe 20 aneurysms. And so it's it really has created a big shift. That said, uh, do we still need aneurysms to be clipped? Absolutely. Uh, and so the training needs to keep happening. Uh, we just have to do it differently. And that's what we're morphing to. That's interesting. So now it, along those lines, for those people who are in training, you say about 20 years. So how many aneurysms do you think a person, a, a trainee, needs to do in their residency, fellowship, whatever, before they can kind of say, I know it, it, it depends, right, that they're good at this, that they're competent in it, or I, that's a wrong word, not competent, that they feel like they can do this stuff? That, that is an outstanding and difficult question uh, because, you know, what are the aneurysms that are easiest to clip? They're going to be your straightforward narrow neck aneurysms, PCOMs, ACOMs, MCAs, uh, and those, of course, are the ones that are easiest to coil as well. And so, you know, the aneurysms that in reality residents are getting to clip are the much more complex wide-necked ones, which can't be done easily endovascularly. And so, you know, I think that it is of, you know, what we do at Wake Forest is we make Make sure every aneurysm is double or triple scrubbed so that from a very early stage you're getting to see all of the aneurysms that are being done open um, but you know that's going to get you like I said you know being able to do maybe in your chief year 20 aneurysms if everything is going well and is that enough to say I'm competent Probably not. Uh, you probably need to have a fellowship because it's those, it's the nuances, right? It's the odd shape, it's the difficult patient, it's the patient with comorbidities that, you know, needs to have something special done. Uh, and so that's, you know, training in high volume places for this specifically, I think is a very important thing. Now, let me ask you about that because I always worried about this with the studies. They do a study, everything's super controlled. Then people try to generalize a randomized or controlled study into practice. But what you're saying is that because open surgery still has more capability maybe, that the more complicated aneurysms may fall more likely into the open surgery category. Is that correct? Uh, a lot of times, yes. So doesn't that kind of stack up as making the open Vassar guys look worse? I mean, you go to M&M, right? They seem to have a lot worse M&M. I mean, is, is this a, 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 we see it in spine too, right? Is this a selection bias against surgeons, so to speak? And I, I don't mean to say endovascular people are not surgeons, but against open surgery. Um, it depends on how you look at the study, right? So most studies, they do a pretty good job of having uh, equipoise, if you will. But for instance, the BRAT study out of Barrow, uh, there was a huge crossover rate. Uh, now, interestingly, their crossover rate went from endovascular switching patients into the open surgery. Uh, I would say if you redid that study at most other places, it would be the opposite. Um, but are you looking, when you look at real world experience, this is definitely apples to oranges, not apples to apples. Yeah, that, that's what I sense. Now, that's, that's really interesting, and I will tell you that uh, we had Adam Arthur on as a guest not too long ago, one of our most listened to podcasts, and the, the title of it was called, if you haven't listened to it yet, uh, Why You Should, in parentheses, Still Take Stroke Call. And I see Bobby Stark and Eric Peterson uh, and Dalip Yavagal in our institution, and I'm like, wow, these guys are getting sucked into the hospital like all hours to do these essentially low RVU, right, stroke procedures. 
and you chose to go in this field, right? Can you explain yourself and, and maybe explain that to your kids and family? So my kids and family are an integral part of this. Uh, we call this a team family effort. And, uh, you know, with stroke, time really is brain. Uh, it's one of the few things where, you know, you actually drive faster and, and uh, walk faster to get the job done. Um, we're at the Children's Museum. We're at church. We're at many places. And a stroke comes in, and the kids know it's time to go. Uh, they actually love coming to the hospital with me. My nine-year-old knows how to open up a sterile table. Uh, we, we practice that in the back, and then they get to play on the computer. Uh, it is, it's difficult on a family, there's no question, um, but it is one of the most rewarding things when somebody comes in, paralyzed, aphasic, what have you, and then they wake up on the table. Obviously, it doesn't happen every time, but it happens enough times that my kids know that we're, we're saving lives. Yeah, the results are, my mother-in-law had that done by Sammy, and it was, um, she didn't end up surviving, but the results immediately were absolutely incredible. It was like a Lazarus, yeah. uh, like, a, like a reawakening, right? Um, well, I, you know, I saw this interesting article a couple years ago that in New York State, the doctors were petitioning to have a siren on the car, like for emergencies. Do you think that maybe in like, North, you're in North Carolina, right? I am. That you should have like a blue or red siren you can put on, <laughs> like in the 70s police chases, maybe you could get to the hospital faster? Uh, while, while that would might be fun, uh, I don't know that it's completely necessary, but, uh, you know, it's definitely one of those things. You you're, you're have to drive along as a safe clip, right? We have to keep everybody safe, not just the person that's going to be on your table. But, um, you know, I, I would say if I ever had somebody start following me, they would follow me all the way to the hospital, and then we would talk about it after I fix the stroke. Great, great point. So very politically correct, by the way. <laughs> now, let me ask you a different question, because we really got into it with Adam, like about this, this thing about um, how often you take call, how often you get called in, how onerous that is. Talk to the young people who may be in residency or thinking about doing this. Like, you know, we've had a lot of residents that did the internal infolded endovascular, and they ended up doing spine at the end because they just couldn't take it. They weren't going to do that for the rest of their lives. What do you, what's your appeal as, as a leader an academic and organizational leader in your specialty, would you say, what's your clarion call? I mean, I know what we say about spine, so tell us what you say about endo. So it is, it is one of the most rewarding specialties if you love emergent care. Uh, you are coming in to help somebody at their time of most need, and you have a very real possibility of taking that patient and making them functional again. Uh, you know, there are Certainly, all kinds of uh, all kinds of care are important. Certainly, spine care. You know, you don't want anyone to be in pain. However, uh, you know, you're talking about taking somebody and, and preventing paralysis and preventing aphasia, um, and that's that's a pretty special thing to be able to do. Uh, on the flip side, you also get to do big, crazy, wonderful aneurysms and AVMs, and so it really is kind of the full spectrum of care. Uh, it's something that when you are looking at how much call you have to take, you do have to take call, but it's manageable and it's all about forming that team, right? So if you form a good team, your call is, is fun and it's not onerous. If you have one person in your shop, it would be absolutely miserable. I see Chris Shaffrey over here. Chris, do you want to come over and make a quick comment? We're talking with Stacy Quintero Wolf here live at the SSBC meeting. We're talking about endovascular call and, and how onerous it is for folks in their, in their family lives. As Dublin is present, do you have anything to say about that? Well, I think call is a burden that is, is inadequately appreciated by much uh, through, throughout the entire health system. Call can be exceptionally burdensome. And I think the way that we as physicians, uh, and particularly as neurosurgeons, 
are compensated for our time on call is uh, is really uh, is really inadequate. So I think that there should be an increasing move to compensate people with this. It, it, it impacts your social life, your family life. If you want to go to one of your children's ball games or whatnot, even having a beeper uh, in your pocket that could go off at any minute impacts uh, how your relationship is with your family and other activities. If you want to uh, go and exercise and you want to go swimming in the pool, you know, having a beeper there impacts it if you want to go and work out. So I think that this is something that has really been uh, been poorly uh, brought to the attention of the public. Yeah, th and thank you. And I think as a plug, I think that that's why we support organized neurosurgery because we advocate for things like call compensation. Thank you so much, Chris. We're looking forward to that. Have a safe flight. So back to Stacy. So Stacy. I don't, I don't want to emphasize it too much, but I do think that, you know, we, I know we have a lot of female listeners, and I know that, you know, we're all neurosurgeons, we're all unique, and we don't want to be identified, like I don't want to necessarily be identified as a Chinese-American, right? But maybe there are some young people out there that would say, well, this is just not the uh, right field for me because let's be honest like in society today women still do uh you know deborah benzel talked about it the brunt of the work at home right so can you just instead of focusing on on the political issues mm -hmm. give us maybe three strategies you already talked about one is that you bring your, <laughs> you bring your family to the hospital <laughs> so give us like two or three don't more tell the administrators whoever is listening <laughs> it's not hypocritical but, it. no, but they no. sit in the back it's fine tell us about uh like like what and and, and i want to get the radiation after that okay so so tell us about how you how you do that besides bringing your kids to the hospital, right? Sure, absolutely. Well, it's, you know, it's something that, like I said, it is really a team approach and that does go over towards the family. Uh, you know, and so this is something that I, I do include my kids and my family when I'm, when I get a call at night, you know, and if it's appropriate, they look at the films, they know who my patients are. We even pray for my patients, you know, on a nightly basis. Uh, and so making sure that they understand what it is that we're doing and what the purpose is, I think is very important. Um, one thing actually that Deb Benzel taught me is that Sitting down and having dinner every night uh, as a family, whenever it is possible, is is hugely important to talk about their day, your day. Even as teenagers, you get them to sit down with you. I don't have teenagers yet, oh. but so far it's working. So <laughs> okay. far it's working. So you're in this fantasy world right now. Okay, yeah, wait, yeah, wait till the teenagers come. So I think that's important. Uh, also important though is when you are. I remember I had to give a talk back in Miami about uh, balance and and. Really, the talk came down to there is no such thing as true balance. Life is a many moments of unbalance. And so when you're doing something, you have to be all in. If you're operating, you're all into that operation. When you're at home dealing with the family, with the kids, you're all in in that moment. Uh, and that those moments of complete undivided time are something that is exponentially better than half time where they're watching TV, you're watching TV, nobody's really paying attention. Uh, and so I I think that that's another thing that's of great great importance yeah so how about okay so this is a touchy point now how about radiation right like i you know i was in china two weeks ago and people are terrified of radiation as spine surgeons we get a lot of radiation but i can't even imagine for what you do right what what do you do not everybody knows the strategy right so that might scare people off right at the bat so tell us what you do sure absolutely uh so you know with endovascular obviously the problem with that is we're, you're getting constant radiation you know you don't kind of go on and off the fluoro pedal real quickly right. we take you, you pictures get... you do a movie right exactly yeah. and so so number one make short movies uh you know there are many ways that i've been able to go and actually i think it's always important whenever you're doing anything uh in medicine learn from other specialties mm -hmm. you know uh and so 
so I was able to go and actually uh, come up with a protocol in my machine that actually helps to decrease the amount of radiation while still maximizing the most important pictures, right? So when you're standing there by the, by the tubes, right, you have your AP, your lateral tube, number one, shielding. Uh, and it's interesting, the radiologists don't do a great job with shielding. We have under the bed shields, we have shields that come up along the waist, we have shields that come down from the ceiling. So that's really important. Making sure that you have obviously your adequate lead and that it's been checked, but I use a sleeve uh, on the left side because that's the side that's oh, always facing. Oh, an arm facing. sleeve, okay. So we've got an arm sleeve there. Uh, and then, you know, obviously glasses, this kind of thing. Uh, hat, maybe not so necessary. Uh, and we have checked by putting bad you know in different areas on us to make sure that you know we're getting but when you take that uh, shield from the ceiling that pretty much covers so you're things. behind like a like a clear shield a clear leaded shield yes yeah, okay. and and in fact then I bring in an extra shield so I've got double shielding ah, in almost okay. every area where you know scatter is and then something I'm always teaching and telling the residents you know you don't lean on the table there's no reason to to absorb the extra scatter that's coming through the patients uh, you know put it on four pulses rather than seven pulses because there's no reason that you need to see every tiny detail as you're navigating through really big vessels when you get up to the brain then it's a little bit different but there's a lot of different strategies that you can use to making sure that you're decreasing your radiation uh, then when you get pregnant that's a whole nother can of bananas uh, because now you're worried about your radiation for you and for the kid and so you know at that point then you know I, I wore an extra maternity um, oh you kept working oh yeah wow I was the only okay. one in Hawaii so, yes, yeah. I kept working. Uh, and so, uh, you know, you're double shielded. This is when you're in the Navy station in Hawaii. Exactly, yeah, okay. exactly. And so I was the only person there in the Navy doing endovascular, and so that was something I couldn't give up. Now, that said, I did actually, one of my partners did spine, and so at that point I did give up kind of the lumbar spine because he could do that, and that way I could focus all of my radiation exposure into interventional where I was the only one that could do it. So, you know, some choices that you make picking and choosing. Uh, I think the other thing that... Uh, my techs absolutely always laugh about, but I, in mostly an appreciative way, is collimation. You can really focus the radiation where it's needed and save a lot of radiation by collimating, which isn't something we do a great job of in the OR with spine and other kinds of things like that. So lots of different strategies. Really, it's about knowing your instruments, knowing your material, and, and maximizing the, the safety measures. Yeah, and I always tell the residents that the best investment you can make when you're starting is to buy your own lead, right? Lead that you can wear so you're not wearing the orthopods lead that's all sweaty and smells and all that, right? <laughs> and, you know, now now you can get lead that's really light that yeah. has double the protection, essentially. And so that's helpful and important. Great. Stacy. this has been fantastic. We're going to have to have you back. Uh, you have so much you can talk about. Talk about your time in the U.S. Navy. Uh, and we've had a couple of Navy seamen uh, retirees already. So uh, thanks again. Look forward to it.